You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 23 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are excited to be joined by one of our newest board members, um, Vice Chairman Bruce Landsberg. And we're also excited to have um, Nicholas Worrell, the Chief of our Safety Advocacy Division, back joining us on the podcast, who had the opportunity to serve as the Vice Chairman's Special Assistant when he first joined us in the board, at the board in August. Welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome. And welcome back, Nick. Thank you. And a shout out to James, our producer. Thank you again for doing what you do and making us sound so good. Vice Chairman Landsberg, uh, you joined the board in August and your bio is available online, but your background has a um, strong emphasis on aviation. And I'm curious for you to share with us why um, and what got you interested in flying in the first place. Great question, Leah. Um, I was... um attending the University of Maryland, and uh, I was uh, in uh, advanced ROTC and had to go to summer camp to learn how to be an officer. And when I got out of summer camp, uh, there was no opportunity to get a summer job. And my dad suggested, yeah, maybe you'd like to learn how to fly. And I said, well, gee, I never really gave it a whole lot of thought. I'd mm-hmm. taken a ride as a Cub Scout once upon a time, sure. but uh, it... Um, hadn't really crossed my mind. And he says, well, there's a little airport out here by the university at College Park. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why don't you go check it out? So I did. And the first flight was absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Uh, And I was flying in a Piper Cub, which was a very small airplane, uh, ragwing and so forth, which was several years older than I was uh, at the time. But um, it came easily for me. And uh, in about six weeks, I went from zero to private pilot. Six weeks. Six weeks. Wow. Uh, I flew every day in the summertime when the weather was good and sometimes twice a day and studied on my own and and, and so forth. And then started working at the airport while I was uh, still in my senior year at college mm-hmm. and um, uh, got some advanced uh, certificates and went on from there. Wow. So the passion just ignited almost immediately. Yeah, it did. I mean, flying is one of those things that either you really like it or this is way too much work. Mm-hmm. And I will say that um, mere mortals can do it. I've taught uh, over 30 (laughs) people how to fly airplanes when I became a flight instructor. Um, There's a lot to learn, but none of it's especially difficult. I have taken a few. I did not complete ground school, but I did sit through a few sessions of of ground school with some of our... um, our pilots here at the agency, they did a little lunch and learn with a few of us who were interested in, in learning more about that. And so um, I have to say it was a little intimidating. It was it's a lot of information. Fascinating. Um, I had I had no idea all of the intricacies of flying a, pa- a plane, but uh, it was, it was a challenging that, course. Yeah, you know, <laughs> One thing that I think intimidates people is they say, well, you need to know a lot of math. I am living proof that you do not. If you can add, subtract, multiply, and divide, basically, um, that's that's really all you need to know because in the airplane, you don't have time to do advanced uh, math uh, equations. The people who build the airplanes Mm -hmm. really need to know the math, but the pilots, not so much. So there's hope for me. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You can't design one, but you might be able to fly one. Awesome. Yeah. awesome. So was your dad a pilot as well? Or? Uh, he was a student pilot, and then he went on to do other things. He be, he was a meteorologist, and so oh. I have a genetic interest in weather. Wow. And so a lot of my uh, aviation interest and, and training uh, goes to weather and helping pilots to understand. Because once you master the basics of the airplane, the weather is our biggest variable. Sure, and I think we have um, we have meteorologists on staff here at the at the board. So, in your bio, we learned that you were a missile missile launch officer on Minutemen for the Minutemen Three Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Program in, in North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um. Well, my friends, uh, even today, are still aghast that I would be tasked with such a responsibility as a young Air Force officer. But um, uh, back in the day, uh, it was the Strategic Air Command that was responsible for all of the, uh, the missiles and the bombers. And they had a great slogan. It was, peace is our profession. And basically, we followed uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, great recognition or idea that um, walk softly and carry a very big stick. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, we sat quietly waiting. And if our adversaries decided to start something, we let them know that we would finish it. And uh, this is pretty serious stuff. And so they, they spent a lot of time uh, making sure that we were operationally and perhaps as importantly, psychologically ready Mm -hmm. to do what we needed to sure. do. So um, we were at the opposite end of the command chain from the, uh, from the president. And with Minuteman, unlike some of the earlier missile systems, we could literally be airborne in a matter of minutes. I can't tell you exactly because that's classified. <laughs> sure. But uh, uh, the other reason you might ask why North Dakota, mm -hmm. uh, Lewis and Clark, the expeditionary force from years ago, went through North Dakota and said it's uh, unfit for human habitation. <laughs> and the Air Force said, great, we'll put a couple of bases there. <laughs> and um, at the time when I was there, uh, had North Dakota seceded from the Union, it would have been the third biggest nuclear power on the planet. We had a couple of bomb wings and a couple of missile wings. And the reason for North Dakota was, was twofold. One, it was the shortest distance over the top to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it was not what anybody would consider a bonus target. Sure. <laughs> so was that something that you sought of that position, or were you identified as, as um, an officer? or a... uh, Yes. Okay. Um, it's... it's um, it was a great operational position. I really wanted to fly, but they said, well, uh, because you've shown some in, uh, interest and aptitude in flying and also because you have allergies, uh, we're going to put you into missiles. So when my active duty time was up, I said, you know, I really like the flying side of things. And since I'm not going to have a, a military flying career, let me pursue the uh, civilian side of it. So uh, when I got off active duty, uh, I came back to the D.C. area and um, uh, started taking additional lessons for advanced ratings and, and so forth. And as I said, became a flight instructor and uh, also decided that uh, it's tough to make a living as a flight instructor. So I went back to graduate school. 
And just as a to backtrack a little bit, you um, started talking about how you were at school in Maryland, <clears throat> then to North Dakota, but you're not originally from Maryland, correct? Well, I grew up in the in the D.C. area. Oh, you did okay. mostly, yeah. Okay. Uh, my my uh, father worked for the uh, uh, the Weather Service, and then he started the graduate school in meteorology mm-hmm. at the University of Maryland. He started it. He started wow. it. Oh wow. So um, yeah, that's why I have as much interest I'm in weather. Sure, and some so. people said, well, why didn't you become a meteorologist? And I said, no, that's going to be a hard act to follow. Plus, <laughs> I don't do math all that well. We've already had that conversation. But uh, it, was, uh, it was good. And at some point uh, downstream, we can have a longer discussion about missiles because it's, uh, it's not something that the average person gets to spend much time. However, I will make a plug for North Dakota. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of my old sites, Oscar Zero, is now a national historic site. And you can go visit it uh, if you are so inclined to do so. Wow. Uh, I recommend summertime highly uh, as, yeah. as the best time to <laughs> go. Oscar Zero is there, and uh, you can see exactly what we did. Yeah. So, so how did South Carolina come into play in your life? South Carolina. Well, that's a good question, Nicholas. Uh, South Carolina uh, comes into play on a couple of points. Uh, one is um, uh, the young lady that I married, I took her flying on our very first date, uh, was uh, a South, native South Carolinian, and she was going to the University of Maryland, 8 o'clock criminology class. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think this was my last year, and so I was just taking anything to, to finish out uh, on electives. And, um, um, you know, she looked pretty sharp at 8 o'clock in the morning. I figured that was, uh, that was, that was good. And, and she was brave enough to go flying with me. Did you bring uh, breakfast for her? I'm sorry? Did you take breakfast for at the 8 o'clock class? Uh, no, we'd already had breakfast at that point. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I will also say that her father was a little less enthralled with the idea of her going flying on our very first sure. outing together. So, uh, But uh, she was native to South Carolina, and then uh, she still has family down there. And uh, her youngest son, uh, Neil, went to the Citadel. So we got to know uh, the Charleston area quite well. And when I retired from uh, AOPA, uh, we decided to, to put a house in down there. And little did I know that I was going to be a failure in retirement. And now I'm back in D.C. <laughs> Just can't stay away. <laughs> so after military, after North Dakota, you came back to the D.C. area to get your graduate degree. And you got that in industrial technology. How did you land on that? No pun intended. Oh, wow. Aviation <laughs> landing. <laughs> Leah, um, <laughs> you, you need a new writer, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Leah is great at puns. Yeah. Um, so what, what landed you in that area of study? Well, nobody knows what industrial technology means. <laughs> I'm not even sure. I have the, to admit, I did look it up because I was not familiar with that. I, I'm not even sure the university knew at the time. It was a relatively new degree. But I was consumed with aviation at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd sort of looked at business and decided that really wasn't where I wanted to go. I was interested in the interaction between people and airplanes and and things of that nature, and this seemed to be the closest to it. And the other thing that I think uh, serves every young person well was part of the curriculum was learning how to develop presentations and deliver them. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of public speaking to the class and and things of that nature. And uh, that served me exceptionally well uh, going forward uh, and 
my first job after I got out of uh, the university, just about the time I graduated, uh, uh, was to go to work for Cessna Aircraft Company in Wichita. So Jan and our oldest son, Matt, and I all trucked out to Wichita and uh, began a new life out there. Wow, the Midwest just keeps pulling you back. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, I've, I've bounced around a fair amount uh, yeah. in, in the business, but we spent uh, 15 years in, in Kansas, and um, uh, they call it Tornado Alley. Mm-hmm. Um, never saw one. Really? They were around, but they have the best thunderstorms in the world, and you can see them coming. Uh, and the clouds are just spectacular, and it's a great place to fly, especially with the, uh, the wind. There's mm-hmm. a lot of wind out there. So what did you do working for Cessna? Um, I was a manager of their uh, Air Age Education Department. Now, this was in the um, late 70s, and Cessna aircraft alone was producing over 14,000 airplanes a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. To put that into context today, uh, the entire industry on piston airplanes is producing less than 1,000. So it was really the golden era. And uh, my job was to help to promote uh, aviation, which was right up my alley to colleges and universities and get high school kids enthused about it. And we came up with the idea of rather than just pushing books and and study, Mm -hmm. that's no fun. Let's uh, set up a fleet leasing and purchase program. So uh, I started that, and uh, if you wanted to buy one airplane, go see a dealer. If you wanted three or more and you were an educational institution, that was my job. So I got to fly brand-new airplanes after I'd flown the world's oldest airplanes as a flight instructor um, literally all over the country, and it was wonderful. Great. You spent a lot of your career working in the, the education and kind of safety area of aviation. What got you interested in, in kind of or, or developing a passion for the education side of things? Well, I left Cessna about uh, after about three years, um, just before the industry went in the tank. I want to make it clear it wasn't my fault. <laughs> but um, I went to work for a company called Flight Safety, which was doing flight simulators and on larger aircraft. And uh, we were dealing with the bottom end of larger aircraft, which were piston twins and turboprops. And uh, I found it very interesting. I was work, uh, working with doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs, uh, mostly multimillionaires and, and so on, who were not professional pilots to transition them into flying their own airplanes. And it was pretty important because these are uh, strong-willed individuals, Mm -hmm. and so forth. And it was my job to persuade them that simulator training was a much better way to go. And they just invested a lot of money in a brand new airplane. They really needed to put as much um, emphasis on learning to fly it themselves. And uh, did that for about 11 years. Uh, We also started a uh, airline training program for new first officers because the regional airline industry was having a difficult time one of many that they seem to periodically go through. Mm -hmm. So we started a a program to transition low-time first officers into the right seat and do it the right way. And I'm pleased to say that uh, uh, we uh, were very successful in that regard. That's great. With with your experience with the Minutemen, um, would you say that that was where you kind of got your safety principles um, started and grounded and that kind of took you in the direction of educating others on, on safety, or was it something else that inspired you to focus your 
your um, interest in safety? I think it was several things, Leah. Um, first off, when you deal with nuclear weapons, uh, oops is not in the vocabulary. Right. And this is, uh, despite what you see on The Simpsons, Homer Simpson uh, running the uh, uh, nuclear power plant, uh, <laughs> that is not uh, the reality uh, in, in which we work. Uh, the other thing was, as a uh, new flight instructor, uh, you start to get a real appreciation for how important it is to pay attention to procedure and detail. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say that uh, um, my first six months as an instructor, I learned more from my students than they ever learned from me. My job was just to keep both of us alive long enough so that they could learn and I could learn. And um, as we talk at a higher level relative to any kind of safety, whether it's cars or ships or aircraft, mm -hmm. people, people think, well, there's a new thing, there's new technology. And that's true. But the basics of safe operation and attention to detail and, and basic skill levels don't change. And we see this in, in some of the automation accidents that are now starting to face us in both driving and, of course, in, in aviation. They have been well, uh, well documented. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about, you talked about uh, safety, and I, in, in the world of uh, safety today, you hear a lot about safety leadership. I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that, your thoughts or your thinking about safety leadership. Well, the last, the last job that I had prior to coming here and did it for uh, over two decades was uh, as the uh, president of the Air Safety Institute for the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association and lived not too far from here up in uh, Frederick, Maryland. Mm -hmm. So... Wichita back right, uh, <laughs> and uh, just outside the, uh, the Beltway. And the job there was to help um, light airplane pilots predominantly uh, not do stupid things with airplanes. And that's the message is very similar to what we're doing here across all modes of, of transportation. Mm -hmm. It's to get people to understand that, um, to misquote uh, the great football coach, Vince Lombardi, <laughs> Um, safety isn't everything, mm -hmm. it's the only thing. He said it about winning, I say it about safety. But when you think about it, what's the purpose of transportation? To get someplace, mm -hmm. right? Well, if you have a crash on the way to getting someplace, the destination doesn't matter anymore. Right. So all of the reasons you have to set the priorities to make sure that you get to wherever it is you're going, which means you have to do that safely. Mm -hmm. So. It seems eminently logical as, as we go forward and as we talk about our most wanted list coming up here, and we'll be spending a lot of time on that uh, later this year. Yeah, sure. Um, Maryland to North Dakota, back to the D.C. area, to Kansas, back to the D.C. area. Did I miss to any? South Carolina? To South Carolina and back. And back. Okay. The <laughs> so South Carolina was sure. a short uh, retirement uh, stint, okay. but uh, I got bored with that. Right, and so you um, you joined the board in August of 2018. Right. And um, I am wondering, you've had a few opportunities to go out, out on launch, and you've had a few other opportunities to do some other um, higher profile activities here at the board. And I'm wondering what so far has amazed you about uh, your time at the NTSB. The reason I joined the board was uh, twofold. I think the integrity of the people here at the board is among the highest anywhere, and I've been privileged to work with 
people of high integrity in, in the aviation world and in the military. Uh, these are really good, capable people. So um, of all the places that I might have worked in government, um, this was the one that seemed to be the, uh, the best fit. The other thing is uh, I think there's a, an element of passion uh, amongst most of the employees here. As they like what they do. They want to do it. And they want to do it well. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean we may not have some different approaches as to how to go about it. Sure. But we, um, Lee Iacocca, who used to be the chairman of, of Chrysler, had a great term. He called it fire in the belly. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, uh, I think, one of the things that uh, I particularly like about uh the staff here at NTSB. Yeah, I know. I would agree that the the people that work here really do make this a, a great place to work. And then, of course, the mission you really can't uh, can't forget and not want to be a part of. Uh, well, such saving an people's mission. lives yeah. is is uh, a very high calling. Yes, yes, it is. Um, what do you hope during your time at the board? What would what do you hope to accomplish? Uh, there are two things I think. Um, Having had the opportunity to work in many organizations and watching how people change, organizations change, our whole environment changes, um, uh, I look to, to make at least some impact on how we do business. And uh, right now, there's a lot of focus on investigations. That's where a lot of this begins. Mm -hmm. But in some of our modes, aviation notably and perhaps in uh, uh, marine, we don't have as many accidents as we used to. Mm -hmm. So where do we gather the data to make really good, solid safety recommendations? Well, now we have to start being proactive. And because we have the ability now to start pulling information uh, from many different sources, uh, flight data monitoring, uh, I'm privileged to continue flying uh, mm -hmm. here uh, uh, back and forth to South Carolina and other places. Um, the airplane that I fly has an engine monitor on it, which they didn't used to have. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a tremendous source of data, and one of the biggest challenges facing us uh, is uh, engine failures in piston airplanes. We, and it's our largest area that we don't clear. In the accident uh, determination is oftentimes undetermined. Well, if we start pulling information off of engine monitors all over the country, on a non-interference um, type of basis, and we have to figure out the way to do that, that'll be very beneficial in terms of saying, okay, we can start to see some patterns uh, develop here. And this could go across all modes. So I think there's an opportunity to be more proactive rather than just going out and picking up the pieces afterwards. We still need to do that, mm -hmm. but uh, this gives us a, a, a broader view. The other area that I w would like to really work with, and I think this will resonate with most of the people here in this room, <laughs> is advocacy yeah, and yeah. our most wanted list. Mm -hmm. And it's not enough for us to investigate the accident, come up with a recommendation, make the recommendation, and stop there. It has to be implemented. And until we make a change in behavior, we haven't solved the problem. And I've been involved in adv advocacy and communication pretty much all my life. So uh, that's an area that uh, I intend to put a lot of emphasis on. And I'd love you guys to talk to me about that. And we look forward you, to working with you. <laughs> you mentioned an interesting something there. You mentioned change of behavior. And that's a 
you know, Stephanie and I, I and, and Leah, we hear that quite a bit. And when we ask to measure our advocacy efforts, one of the things that come up is change in behavior. And it's often said that, you know, it's very difficult and challenging to measure behavior change. Yes and no. Um, it is. It can be difficult. But for us, um, I think we're measured by accidents. You know, every time there's an accident, there's a failure along the way and so forth. And we're getting pretty good at identifying root cause. Mm -hmm. We know what causes accidents. On the highways, for example, um, which is 95% of our transportation accidents, if you make a comparison between highway and aviation, mm -hmm. even private aviation, there is no comparison. So I think a lot more emphasis on the highways will be very beneficial. Um, Distracted driving. We could we could go on for an hour mm -hmm. easily just talking about distracted driving and the challenges there. We can talk about impairment. There's another hour of discussion. Right. Um, <clears throat> medical fitness, uh, speed, all these kinds of things that are on our most wanted list that um, uh, will make a difference. We know what to do. We know how to fix it. So now we get to. Nicholas, the changing of behavior, and that starts on several levels. One is on an education level. Next is on people taking the, the initiative and, and responsibility for their own actions. Then I think you have to have good, reasonable uh, legislation. It can't be overreaching. It has to be uh, balanced. And then finally, there needs to be good, consistent, and fair uh, enforcement mm -hmm. of, of some of the rules that we put in place. So will it happen overnight? No. This mm -hmm. is an evolutionary process, but uh, uh, in my time here, uh, these are some of the areas that I look forward to uh, making a difference in. Sure. And looking at the aviation operating environment, and then also, as you mentioned, highway, where we still have such a significant number of um, fatalities every year and injuries as well. Um, what have you seen from, from your work in the aviation industry has kind of really had the most impact on helping to improve safety and really driven down the, especially commercial aviation um, numbers? Well, commercial aviation is uh, held up as the gold standard, and I think it's um, it's sort of jumbling the fruit bowl when we try to compare other modes. And even um, one of the statements that's made is, well, general aviation has 40 times the accident rate of commercial aviation. It's not a valid comparison because the airplanes are different, the pilots are different, the operating environment is totally different, mm -hmm. and where they have similarities. So, for example, uh, turbine aircraft powered uh, turbine powered aircraft with two person crews. Uh, general aviation will match or exceed the air carriers. Those are comparable. But when you move down from that, it isn't comparable. So I think you have to look at, say, general aviation with light airplanes versus driving. Now we start to get into some, some valid differences. Um, we're very carefully monitored. Um, there are medical requirements for every level, starting from private pilot on up, mm -hmm. that say, okay, you need to visit your doctor. You need to understand about what medications you take. There's that impairment business again, and we can, and over-the-counter medicines yeah. Yeah. Uh, that uh, people have problems with. 
you know, we're getting into another long one hour or longer <laughs> discussion here. <laughs> but uh, all day. <laughs> uh, uh, let me not go t- too far off the rails. But there are processes and procedures and there's monitoring that goes on. And people behave differently when they're known they're being watched. Speed limits. Um, in the aviation world, we have speed limits um, below 10,000 feet, 250 knots. Now, nothing I fly these days, before I did, but nowadays nothing goes that fast. Mm-hmm. But if you break the speed limit, air traffic control is going to have some words with you, and they're going to have it pretty quickly. Um, we don't have that on the highways at this point. Mm-hmm. There is technology to do it. Uh, there's probably also a lot of pushback on the part of some of our citizens, maybe even some in this room, as to, uh, you know, I feel like I ought to be able to go 10 or 15 miles an hour faster. And my response is, well, um, let's set the speed limits properly. Let's not use this for revenue enhancement and then let's enforce them. And using the police on the side of the road doesn't make a lot of sense. We have much better ways and much more efficient ways of doing it. Let's use eco- economics to deal with that. Speaking of enforcement, this is just a total curiosity. If you do go over 250 knots, uh, do you get a speeding ticket from the FAA? Usually what will happen... <laughs> or the equivalent of <laughs> <laughs> Well, usually what will happen is uh, air traffic will um, remind you that you need to slow down. Mm -hmm. So Um, like a warning. If we're talking about highway context, that would be like a a warning. Yeah. Maybe. It it depends. (laughs) It depends on the circumstance. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is if we lose uh, air traffic separation because of your actions, um, that's more serious. Mm -hmm. So if you're just out in the middle of nowhere and you drop down below 10,000 feet, North Dakota, for example, uh, you're going to, uh, you're probably going to get a, hey, you know, you're below 10, slow down. Mm-hmm. If you are in a situation, if you're doing it in the Northeast Corridor, mm-hmm. and they lose separation between the airplanes, we talk about the bubbles, keeping the bubbles from touching, um, then you you probably will get a violation and you could get your certificate suspended. Okay. So it 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 can be pretty quick and and so forth. And that's just one example. Um, most of the time, um, I think people have worked hard to get their certificates and the privilege, not the right, mm-hmm. the privilege to fly airplanes. The same thing applies to driving, although a lot more people do it, right. and so on. Driving is a privilege. It's not a right. And so, um, as the saying goes, the right to swing your arm ends where my nose begins. (laughs) So if you are are driving irresponsibly, uh, I have a right, that's not a privilege, to be able to operate on our highways without being killed because you're doing something stupid. So I think this is something that we have to start educating people about, including our elected officials. Uh, the police already get it, but we need to start using the technology. It's very difficult to change human behavior, but we can use technology to uh, assist that, and uh, things work a lot faster. Sure, I know that you, um, in advocacy we have a lot of opportunities to work on the highway safety side of things, and one of the um, areas that everyone's kind of always 
working in or trying to to get a good um, you know make progress on is the idea of safety culture within the highway operating environment and other modes. You know, it's very much a, a part of how you operate and and how to. Um, just wondering what thoughts you might have for you know, ways to really help to kind of shape safety culture as we're talking about, you know, a huge society of people to really, like you said, see driving as a privilege and not a right and that you have the responsibility to not just, you know, protect yourself, but your behaviors certainly impact those sharing the road with you. I think we can learn a lot from the Europeans. And again, this is the United States and we like to live free or die, to quote the folks in New Hampshire. Um, we're kind of an independent group, but the reality is that, you know, you don't have the right or the privilege to injure or kill somebody else. Mm -hmm. Let me put this in context for you relative to aviation. Um, would you be outraged or upset if we were losing four Boeing 737s or Airbuses every single week? Absolutely. <laughs> That's what's happening on our highways. We wouldn't tolerate even four uh, major accidents in the airlines on an annual basis. Right. And yet somehow this is acceptable on our highways. And I think every one of us knows somebody who has either directly or has lost somebody to a highway crash. Most of them are not accidents. Mm -hmm. Accidents mean it's unpredictable. This isn't unpredictable. We know what causes crashes, and usually it's because the driver did something stupid. So uh, I think you have to start getting people to understand that, and there has to be probably the best motivator is economics. Uh, insurance uh, costs have to cover the damage that people do. And again, you guys have a penchant for opening up discussions that could go for much longer than we have yes, here. Yes, and this is a conversation that has been, you know, going yeah. on for a very long time as we're, mm -hmm. you know, as Nick started talking about behavior change is, is very hard because it's our own personal responsibility and our perception of, yeah. of what we should or shouldn't be doing, especially when we're on the highways. And it's, you know, safety culture, like we mentioned, we know is a huge, um, a huge area of focus in the other modes, but it just seems to be something that really there isn't this culture of safety, you know, within the highway environment. Well, the difference is when you're dealing with professionals versus individuals and with professionals, generally it's, it's kind of put this way. If you want to keep working for us and have a job, you'll be reasonable and do it our way. Mm -hmm. When it's just you it's different, and many people have different perceptions. We're also learning with young people who have a disproportionate number of accidents due to um, inexperience. Um, they may not be very good at handling vehicles. Uh, they also haven't seen very much, uh, so they're pretty well sure that they're indestructible. And we also know that the brain doesn't fully develop until about age 25. You don't see very many uh, ship captains or captains of airliners or corporate jets below that age. There's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're going to start people driving at age 25. <laughs> but there are some things that we can learn. And then we have to look at this in a different way. And I understand the whole concept of the nanny state. But again, I think we have to look for a balance. How many lives are you willing to expend for the freedom to be able to do X, fill in the blank? 
Sure. Switching gears a little bit, um, in your bio it says that you sail. So you do have some marine experience in a way. <laughs> but I'm wondering with um, you know sailing for recreation and having the background in aviation, do any of those um, safety principles or skills overlap? Or have you kind of taken anything from the sailing experience and applied it to aviation or vice versa? Leah, the short answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> we don't, we don't want to be here for another two hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just briefly, um, my wife is always the best instigator. Um, we lived in Kansas, and I used to comment that there were prodigious quantities of wind, and I was kind of interested in learning how to sail. When I was much younger, I had a powerboat and did water skiing and all that kind of stuff. But uh, um, one winter after evening, I was talking about this again for about the 15th time. And she said, well, why don't you just go do it? And I said, all right, fine, I will. <laughs> so I went out and bought a very small 14-foot uh, sailing dinghy, is what they called it. And we had a big lake out west of Wichita and essentially uh, went to the library, got a book on sailing, and had a fool for an instructor. I taught myself to sail. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and I, I took uh, my wife and our two young sons out on the boat in much higher winds than we probably should have. But we managed, and it kind of went on. And when we came back here, uh, we were privileged to sail on a much bigger boat. Uh, and like airplanes, bigger airplanes and bigger boats are much easier than small ones. Mm. Uh, they're not as affected by the weather. They tend to be more stable. Et cetera, et cetera. And so we sailed the Chesapeake here for a number of years. And one of the things I do miss about South Carolina, as much as a great place it is, Charleston Harbor is not the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we are getting uh, close to the end of our podcast. And I just want to offer Stephanie um, an opportunity to ask any final questions or final thoughts. I don't think I have any. All right. Any final <laughs> thoughts from you, Vice Chairman Landsberg? I'm glad to be here. It's it's a privilege uh, to be working with with all of you. Um, um, I find it uh, stimulating, uh, challenging, irritating all at once, uh, which is I think true of of every job. And I've been very fortunate in, in all of my jobs to do exactly what I want to be doing. And uh, so uh, I thank you for the opportunity to be here and to talk to uh, our team members and, and uh, invite them when they're here in Washington to stop by my office if I happen to be in, and uh, I'd love to meet them. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I've learned a lot from you today. Um, thank you to, again to James for producing the show, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. Thank you again to Nicholas for joining us. And uh, this weekend is Daylight Savings, so I want to remind everyone to spring forward. And as you do that, make sure that you are getting enough rest so that you are not fatigued um, come Monday morning when you have to go back to work. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.